Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again to do another edition of the Florida State Podcast. Uh, Bud, we'll go ahead and get started. We'll go ahead and, and jump into uh, the news of the day, which is I was not a decommitting from Florida State. I will go ahead and tell people that uh, for just for purposes of uh, full disclosure, we actually recorded a podcast last night, had some technical issues, lost most of the audio, and decided to re-record as a lot of the things that, uh, ironically enough, we discussed last night um, are kind of tied to uh, the NADA news and just some, some overall themes about recruiting and, and what this class looks like and what the class um, or what the the general perspective of recruiting uh, is going to look like moving forward and what the staff, uh, position coaches, their responsibilities and, and where their focus lies. So, um, but let's go ahead and jump into it. Not a, no bones about it. One of the better players in the class uh, nationally, maybe the best player currently committed to Florida State, uh, probably the best tight end and one of the better years for tight end that we've seen in a long, long time. Uh, a really talented player who was kind of the bell cow of your class who um, more or less looks like, uh, I know technically Florida State is still in the picture, but from the early interview given, uh, it looks like he'll probably be moving in a different direction. And in general, it's odd to see a kid commit, decommit, and then end back up at that uh, first institution. Yeah, and, you know, I, I kind of wish that we had saved uh, the audio from last night's podcast. That's my fault, guys. The, the Internet kept going out on me. And, and so when uh, when Ingram went to try and put it together, it was just disjointed as hell. And uh, so Comcast, probably not ever going to be a sponsor on this podcast, and they uh, they can go to hell. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so, Florida State loses, in my opinion, the best player in their recruiting class. I, I know Malik Henry and, and uh, Levante Taylor are, are ranked higher, uh, but I've seen all these guys a bunch. And uh, I, I think Nada was the best player they had in this class. And uh, he's the best tight end I've seen in years. And uh, outside of probably uh, the O.J. Howard kid uh, who ended up at Bama a couple of years ago. And I think he would have come in and started – probably right away uh, for Florida State. And uh, and now that looks like that's not going to happen. I mean, maybe they can get him back. It seems probably uh, pretty unlikely. Uh, but, you know, a kid who is, has cited, uh, I believe he talked to 247, uh, said he wanted to, I think view the staff that wanted to make him a better man or something like that. Um, and, uh, and cited a bunch of issues about, about wanting to be closer to home. Um, which is, of course, interesting. He's originally, I believe he's lived in Jacksonville and, and in Georgia, uh, went to Buford High School uh, before he ended up down at IMG. Uh, I think there's a lot of factors here, man. Um, you know, you have, obviously, I, I think he's probably uh, getting a lot of negative recruiting, as, as are a lot of the FSU recruits right now, because Florida State is in the media so much with with these off-field issues, some of which are certainly legitimate and some of which are, are not, but yet still at the same time magnified by how many wins Florida State has had in recent years and how many uh, uh, how, how many people just think James Winston got away with something uh, you know back in the day with the accusation and that a lot of a lot of stuff is viewed through the lens of Winston, if you will, um, has kind of you know served to ma- magnify a lot of these a lot of these negative reports, especially when, when you uh, when you cluster the two incidents, the, the DeAndre Johnson incident, which we all saw on video, and then the Dalvin Cook accusation on back-to-back nights, uh, that's really going to create a lot of momentum uh, against the Knowles. And I, I think people are definitely in his ear about this. So there's no doubt that negative recruiting exists, and uh, I think Florida State is a victim of that somewhat here. Um, and he certainly still has a good relationship with Tim Brewster, as far as I can tell. But um, you know, that's, that's probably hurting Florida State some right now. And I also think uh, I think some of the, the turmoil down there right now at IMG, which I believe we discussed on a prior podcast, is also serving maybe to make some of these kids who are down there uh, think about you know home and, and think about being closer to their family and, and the people they grew up around. Uh, because IMG is sort of a little like a – it's almost like college light, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're down there. You're, you're at a boarding school. You're away from your folks. You're away from the – the people you grew up with, and, and it's not the same staff you, you uh, not the same staff you committed to uh, down there at IMG. I mean, we can say, hey, 
it's no longer Chris Winkie. And it's not like Chris Winkie was pushing kids to Florida State. In fact, I think it was really the opposite, especially after Jimbo didn't interview him for the coaching job, the uh, the quarterback coaching job back in the day when he hired Randy Sanders. Um, uh, no love lost between those two, I believe. But it's uh, I, I think that, you know, you have some turmoil down there at IMG right now with, within their their administration and within their coaching staff, just from what I'm hearing. And I wonder if that doesn't also serve as a, hey, maybe – you know, maybe I want to be closer to home. So I think those two factors, him taking a lot of visits. Um, you know, Georgia obviously has a great – Georgia, by the way, if you're listening to this and don't follow recruiting too heavily, it looks like the kid's probably going to end up in Georgia. Uh, so, you know, it's a staff that has really, really recommitted itself to, to loading up with recruiters on the, on that staff. And, uh, and it seems like they're finally following the uh, sort of Bama, Auburn, FSU – LSU, you know, style, uh, all in, you know, let's, yes. let's focus on winning uh, style of game plan. The, the the makeup of that staff has certainly um, – it, it's, it's certainly such that now I don't think they can claim a moral high ground over these other staffs like perhaps previously their fans have tried to do. Personally, that's just my opinion if you look at who they've added in recent years. So a lot of different factors there. And uh, ultimately, we see Florida State lose, uh, I mean, inarguably one of their best three players in the recruiting class, a guy who is uh, an early impact kid probably wherever he goes. Yeah. So um, I, I think that's enough for Nada. Look, he's a super talented kid, a guy who stood out uh, at the opening uh, amongst the best players in the country, a guy that uh, I can tell you – it's kind of has a little bit of a magnetic personality, but kind of like a humble guy, but kids are attracted to him. Kids like, uh, just, I think like him in general, certainly, uh, he's an impressive player on the field. Uh, it's, it's a big loss. And if he does end up at Georgia, that just doesn't, can't shock you being that, uh, he's in Buford and then, all of the, uh, I think you're, I think you're right. I think a lot of kids are getting negatively recruited to Florida State, and to an extent, that's what you expect. That's big time college football. Uh, that's part of the game when you choose to, uh, when you choose to enter it. But uh, Nada was kind of a bell cow, and not someone that you necessarily thought uh, was was going to waver. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. What kind of impact it has on the class as a whole, but, but, um, ironically enough, this, this really does tie into the conversation we were having last night. And that is the fact that, um, let me see how I can say this because you, you don't want to sound foolish. You don't want to sound overly pessimistic. Um, and it's real easy to sound either of those two things, but there might be some, some concerns with the recruiting, uh, that Florida state's doing and the composition of the staff. Uh, you sound like you sound pretty uninformed when you talk about that uh, and you juxtapose it to the fact that Florida State currently has the third best recruiting in the class, uh, third best recruiting class in the country, and they have that um, with legitimate numbers. It's not because they have 27 kids committed already. Uh, they have similar numbers that the, the, uh, to comparative schools in the rankings, and, and that's an honest um you know, an honest assessment of the class. So um, let's discuss that real briefly, some of the things that you see in the staff, some of the trends that you see, and maybe some of the concerns that you have uh, moving forward. Well, you know, I think uh, it's really difficult to sit here and say, hey, Florida State staff sucks at recruiting, right? Um, You know, because I, I, I think that people would laugh at you if you said that. They have the number three class in the country, I think 12 of their what uh 12 of their 16 position players are rated four stars or better. I mean you're looking at what 75% there and and um you know 12 of the uh 12 of the 18 if you if you count the kicker so still mm-hmm. two thirds of the class which is I mean probably on pace to be Jimbo Fisher's highest rated class in terms of percentage of stars ever assuming he's able to hold on to guys but you know, man, there there are some warning signs, and I, I think that you know, people who listen to this podcast appreciate nuanced analysis, and, and I, I hope that's what we're going to be able to give them tonight when, when, when I drop some stuff like this. Yeah, they have a really, really good class. 
they are kicking ass in the state of Florida for the most part. And that's a good thing. But you also have to consider that they're doing so at a time in which Florida is on one of its worst, you know, historically worst periods ever. Uh, and Miami is seemingly constantly uh, on the downslope and, and just went six and seven and, and has a coach that uh, is, is firmly on the hottest of hot seats. So, you know, are, how much credit are you going to give this, you know, this uh, addition of FSU staff for that? And how much credit are you going to give FSU's previous staff for putting FSU in a position to take advantage of that? I, I think personally, uh, I would give most of the credit to what the previous staffs did over, over you know, Jimbo Fisher's uh, first five years in Tallahassee, as opposed to what what you know, kind of this iteration of the staff has done uh, in their year in Tallahassee so far. You look at this. You know, I, I don't think Lawrence Dolphy is a very good recruiter. Uh, I, you know, we, we criticized him previously. He certainly has done a lot better in Tampa, uh, but at the same time, uh, I, I think part of that is because of how bad UF has been. You know, um, you, you have um, he, he didn't get Spar Manuel up, up for another visit, and Manuel then listed a top three of uh, uh, UF, LSU, and Auburn in some order. I can't remember exactly which. That's that's certainly a a red flag for me. I know Manuel's visited Florida State more than in her school. I know that. Uh, people close to Manuel say, "Hey, uh, Florida State's still still in this for sure." But you know, a, a very tried and true axiom in recruiting is follow the visits. If a kid's not visiting your school, that's not a good sign, especially if you contrast it and note that he is visiting other schools. Like he did mm-hmm. take a visit out to LSU, he did take a visit to Florida, he did manage to get up to Auburn, but yet not not coming to check out FSU. That that's not a good sign. You know, Nate Craig Myers, the guy. Florida State just put, you know, several receivers in the league, uh, by far the best passing offense out of any any school he's considering. You know, you look at the other schools he's really considering, Auburn, Ohio State, Florida. I mean, he's not <laughs> – those those schools either uh, don't throw the ball by design, uh, you know, because they're spread option teams or, or haven't in the past. I know Auburn's going to throw the ball more this year. Or, uh, or, or just really uh, – really have been unable to do so, uh, i.e. Florida. You know what I mean? So you, you look at that and you say, man, that, that how does Florida State not have him wrapped up better right now? You know, how, how do they not have a commanding lead for that kid? And, and to me, you know, that, that's something I look at. I don't believe Dawson's a very good recruiter, and uh, I think that Florida State should be doing a lot better in Tampa than they are. But I'll note that they are doing well, and they're doing well enough to be the number three class in the country right now but in my mind, they're still underachieving relative to what I believe they should be able to do, especially coming off, you know, putting the most guys in the NFL draft in a three-year period, only losing three, you know, three games in that stretch, being the dominant team in the state for the last five years, you know, uh, winning a national title, winning three straight conference titles, all, all that stuff. So I, I think that you, overall in the staff, you, you see, in my opinion, uh, underachievement on the recruiting trail to date so far this year. And it's not just kids going to other schools. I, I think it's also, you know, we see kids not getting in for visits to Florida State. I mean, you have two guys in Jay Graham and Brad Lawling who are supposed to be North Carolina specialists, right? You know, they're, they're from the Carolinas. They're, they're supposed to be able to do a really good job there. They've been lauded for their recruiting effort, you know, uh, efforts in those areas in previous years. And yet, did Keon Doiner get down for a visit this summer? Did Dexter Lawrence get down for a visit this summer? Mm-hmm. No, they didn't. Those, if, if you're supposed to be a Carolina specialist, gonna need you to get those guys down. Those guys have to come visit, and they didn't. And yeah, I, I think the counter to that is, hey, where did they visit? And the answer to that is not much. I mean, I, I know Dexter Lawrence, I think, went to went to Bama for a quick stop, and then visited North Carolina, which is right down the road from his house. So I, I don't even know if you even really want to count that that much. But hey. If somebody can convince him to visit Bama, maybe you can find a way uh, to get him a ride down to Florida State, right? So I think that's uh, that's something to watch there. And and you just, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot. Go ahead. Well, um, let me let me kind of summarize the the concerns that I think you may want to voice when we're talking about this, and that is that you're you're doing great in Florida. Uh, you, you've done real well for a while now. Um, to an extent, 
uh, you may continue to do real well in Florida, but it won't be as easy as it's been because Florida is serious about recruiting. Florida is coming. Florida has an aggressive staff that needs to get results. Um, and so to an extent, you're just going to face greater challenges in that particular area. What is really concerning is that you're getting just kind of flat shut out of the rest of the deep south. Uh, you're having oh, to yeah. go into Virginia. You're having to go um, into Midwest. You're having to look at Texas more. You're having to um, – hey, here's what we talked even more about last night. You're having to be so reliant on one guy, on Tim Brewster, to do your recruiting for you. That's not sustainable. You can't – this program can't not have traction in the state of Georgia, South Georgia in particular. Uh, It can't just get shut out of all these other places. And certainly you want to recruit Florida. You want Florida to be your base. If you win more kids than not in the state of Florida, you're going to be a pretty damn good football team. But that's not going to be as easy as it has been in the past. And the fact that uh, not being able to get a kid out of Alabama, that's kind of historically been the way it is. The That little brief period of time is more the aberration than the norm. Uh, but the fact that you're getting shut out of the, uh, you know, Georgia and some of the other areas that you've historically been reliant upon is that's, you can't have that. You've got to have a better better penetration, better presence in the market there. And I, I, I totally agree with you, and let, 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 me, let me just say this. Florida State is getting nobody that LSU wants out of Louisiana. I know mm-hmm. Kyle Myers has a quote-unquote offer from LSU. Newsflash here, he's not a take for LSU right now. If he tried to call him up and commit to his quote-unquote offer, they would not take it. He is a backup plan and perhaps a backup to a backup plan there, to be honest. So, you know, if, if everything falls through for LSU's recruiting class or something, then maybe they could, they could, you know, we could say that they want Kyle Myers. But as of now, no. Jamal Couch, the linebacker they have out of Phoenix City, who I, I think Charles Kelly did a really good job of getting on early because he knows that area. If Auburn comes calling, I would expect him to flip and, and go with his teammate to, to Auburn. So then you would be down basically to zero right there. But as of now, he doesn't have an Auburn offer, and he does not have an Alabama offer yet. So your count in Alabama is zero. And as of now, you don't even have a player committed from Georgia, so I, there's really no debating as to whether Georgia wants anybody that you have from Georgia because they just went and, uh, and and got your kid to decommit in, in Isaac Nada. So that's it, although he's from technically, I mean, he's listed as Florida right now. But anyway, that's a pretty big shutout kid's from right Buford, there, man. I mean, that's what we argued last night. Yeah, good. exactly. you got to consider that kid a product of Buford High School, even, even with kind of the family's, uh, moving background, that's still kind of where you would put the pen in the I mean, certainly not a South Florida were. kid. I mean, in, in any regards, you know, Jacksonville to me is is, uh, is a pretty southern type city. It's not mm-hmm. like he's from plantation. Right. Um, right. So, you know, you, you look at this and you say, okay, well, that's that's concerning. Here's where it's even more concerning. This is a very country staff. You know, like you're, you're, you're not able to go into – to the deep south and get any kind of traction, um, that's not a good thing when you have, you know, a staff that that is so, uh, I think country is the right word, to be honest. You know, they're, they're they're not a bunch of, you know, urban city guys. They are, are, are more of a more of a country-type staff, and, and their results right now are excellent, but I just reiterate, I don't think they're exactly what they could be. You brought up a good point with the Brewster thing. You know, Tim Brewster is a guy... Uh, as people like to say, you know, he he's a dog, man. He, and I, I saw people on Twitter talking about this today. Um, I totally agree. Florida State needs at least one more dog on its recruiting staff. They need a guy who, if he has a son that plays, you know, seven on seven or or you know goes to a, a camp, right? Under NCAA rules, you're allowed to. Uh, uh, to, to go to go to a, a Nike camp or, or a camp or a seven-on-seven event if you actually have a son playing. You need a guy who is actually going to take that and because his mindset is always on recruiting, shows up decked head-to-toe in FSU gear, right, mm-hmm. and lets it be known, hey, I'm the FSU coach, that type of thing. You know, and I, I don't think they have that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside, from, aside from Brewster, I mean, I, I'm not saying these guys are bad recruiters. I just think the staff yeah. is heavily loaded with guys who are more coaches than they are recruiters. And it's very rare that you have guys who are great at both. Those guys generally become elite head coaches and quickly. And you don't get to keep them long 
as position coaches, you know. Yeah. So and I, it's I it's an older staff. I mean, look at look at your defensive ends coach. Staff. Look at your defensive tackles coach. Look at your linebackers coach. How many of these guys Snapchat? You know. Right. Right. Yeah. Great point. And but the only other thing that I would say to this is that you've got guys um, that kind of historically you would have as your places of strength uh, as coaches, as far as where you place coaches on the staff. Uh, that you could you could identify as recruiters and kind of the rec- you've got to get recruiters out of those places uh, and I'm just not sure you're getting that from this staff so um, you don't want to be too critical of it you don't want to be sky is falling um, but you do want to spot some trends when you see them and one of them right now is uh, is the Florida State's recruiting efforts fall way too frequently on one man's shoulders. There's no doubt. I mean, Tim Brewster is carrying the staff in recruiting. You know, like, I I don't think Bill Miller is a bad recruiter. I, I think he's actually historically been a pretty good recruiter, you know, and I don't think Charles Kelly is a bad recruiter. Uh, you know, I, I don't think a lot of these guys are, are bad recruiters. I just don't see another recruiting ace on this staff. You know what I mean? And your point about, about there are certain positions where you kind of stash guys as, as recruiters Running back coach be, being the, the primary Running one. Running back was, was the one in my mind, absolutely. Because gotta, the, difference, the difference between the best damn running back coach in the world and the worst damn running back coach in the world is not nearly as big as it would be in any other position coaching thing, right? Like if your receiver's mm-hmm. coach can't teach a guy how to run a route, you're in trouble. Like you can't just typically stash, you know, a guy who can't coach at all at receiver's coach, you know, and, and certainly not – a defensive backs coach, and, and, you know, each staff has to kind of figure out where it wants to stash its, uh, you know, stash its ace recruiters. Historically, but a running back is pretty consistently staff to staff. That's where you put your ace guy that you don't really care if he can coach a lick, man. You know, because that's just a dude that you you want a dog in recruiting there. I don't think Florida State has that right now. You know, in my opinion, I don't think it's, I don't think it's happening. Now, I don't want to pass judgment because not yet. You know, let's, let's, let's give it the season. If if, uh, if Florida State ends up signing, you know, Keon Joyner and, and, uh, and Dexter Lawrence out of North Carolina, all of a sudden my, my, my opinion on this is flipped right now. You know, it is flipped 180. But as of right now, guys, I haven't visited yet. You know, they're not really saying Florida State is, is their leader or anything like that. I think you got to be on those guys pretty solid. So Tim Brewster is definitely um, – you know, it's certainly being passed with carrying the staff right now. And, and obviously he lost not a day, and, and that's, that's going to get blamed on him by some, although I, I wouldn't put it all on him, to be honest. I'd, I'd probably put very little of it on him. Uh, I, I think it was sort of out of his control. But, you know, another thing that, that would come up here is we, we all know, like if everybody I assume has read The Bagman by Stephen Godfrey on Espionation, which is just a fantastic piece, uh, you know, should have won even more awards than it did. But it basically, it, it interviews bagmen from all around the Southeast. And bagmen are guys who, you know, get these recruits money from schools, from boosters, you know, get their parents set up with jobs, help with the moving expenses when you want these kids to come up to school. Because if you're playing big boy football, and Florida State plays big boy football along with all, all these other schools in the Southeast, you're involved in this to some extent, right? Now, how much the coaching staff directly knows, blah, 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 it's a little bit, you know, it's up for debate. And there, there's always sort of a a level of plausible deniability that they would want. But there's no doubt in my mind that you have two staffs in this state who are desperate right now. And neither of those are Florida State. And by that, I mean Miami is a staff that is totally on the hot seat. They would love to catch Florida State doing something improper, right? Mm-hmm. And Florida, Florida staff just took over a roster that is really, really incredibly lacking in some spots in Gainesville because of what Will Muschamp did, especially on the offensive side of the ball. What a bigger leg up to them than if you if you busted Florida State doing something improper, right? Something that all schools who compete in the, in this pool of, of super elite recruits do. If you're Florida State right now, you got to be kind of careful. You know, you really gotta, <laughs> you got to you got to watch what you're doing. And I think if if you have that mindset it really exposes even more and hurts you if you don't have really good recruiters, you know, recruiters who are not winning kids over just on relationships, you know what I mean, just on, mm-hmm. on selling the school and winning and getting the league and, on, and 
winning titles and, and all that crap. So I, I think that's something to, and I don't want to go into like specifics here because it, it's, it, well, obviously for obvious reasons, I think. But just know that all schools do that, and and FSU, I, I think, would be very, uh, very much a, a watched school right now, perhaps more than, than even in previous years. Um, due to the, the situations that the, the two rival staffs in, in the state are currently find themselves in, and I, I wonder if that's not also exposing some of the uh, some of the issues that FSU is having right now on the recruiting trail. Hmm. All right, fair enough. Uh, you know, makes sense. A little bit of the uh, kind of the real life or real world part of this, and it's uh, you know, it's not necessarily the easiest topic to to discuss, but uh, uh, I'm glad that you at least gave it some some acknowledgement. Um, look, we'll read see, the we'll bag see what happens. By, by Stephen Godfrey. Yeah, the uh, bag is a great the piece. The bag really is a great piece, and it really, if you haven't read it, uh, I think you're, if you haven't read it, uh, go read it because I think it'll really open your eyes as to uh, how the recruiting game really works. Absolutely, yeah. Defensive tackles, booster meetings at Waffle House, uh, <laughs> Cash payments, all all the stuff that college football Con- contracts on. written out on napkins. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, but that guy died, by the way. The uh, the, the dude who uh, was involved in turning in uh, Bama. Did you see that? I did. The, uh, the, the, the the legendary Tennessee booster. It's a really good actually. A, a for uh, turned in for Albert Means. Right. Yes, for the Albert Means deal. Uh, I think his name. It's not the Logan Young guy. It was the Tennessee guy. Um, and he was, like, legendary for having these huge, like, Saturday parties inside his house and uh, and flaunting NCAA rules and all that stuff. So it, it's, uh, it's actually a pretty cool little biography to read. Uh, it was in the New York Times over the weekend. Hmm. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just something we're going to look at, something we're going to follow. Obviously, something we'll discuss up until the – first Wednesday of February of 2016, and, and we don't want to be too doom and gloom, but uh, did want to talk about that, uh, particularly being a conversation that we had last night, even before the uh, the NADA decommitment. So I think you kind of enter into a little bit of maybe like seven to ten days. You just watch, if you're a Florida State fan, make sure you don't see any other significant defection and uh, I think I think the greatest thing for Florida State is to not have anything happen the rest of the off season, get into football season, uh, have the focus switch to football, and uh, you know if by sheer fact alone that some of these coaches have to get back to coaching, uh, the negative recruiting will lighten up. Uh, you'll have product to put on the field, and and it's just a it's a little bit of a it's just a little bit of a kind of a rough ride that Florida State's got to uh, got to ride out right now and uh, realize that they're particularly susceptible to negative recruiting and uh, maybe even more uh, apprehensive about being particularly aggressive on the recruiting uh, the recruiting trail right now. Yeah, there's no doubt. Um, do we want to go ahead and talk uh, talk Ramirez Sewell then as well? Yeah, we'll do real quickly on Amir Rasul. Uh, this is something, again, that we discussed last night when it was somewhat breaking news. And so I don't want to uh, I don't want to be too repetitive about it, but it's certainly worth uh, mentioning. But I'll just give you my initial thoughts, and that is that it's obviously a kid whose game is built on speed. Uh, that is kind of his unique characteristic. Uh, but when you watch the tape, it's he's he's a little bit bigger in statue than maybe you would think a kid that runs a 10, 300 meters. Um, but when I watch the film, I also like, um, you know, I like the fact that his balance is a little bit better than maybe what you'd expect out of a pure sprinter. And, and also he's a kid that's willing to run through, you know, try to run through tackles, occasionally does run through tackles. Um, a lot of times, particularly in a high school kid, if he's the fastest guy on the field and he knows he's the fastest guy on the field, uh, that's something that you'll see either a kid just try to bounce it outside all the time, uh, just doesn't want to be touched because sometimes he can, he can, you know, uh, he's fast enough where he isn't. So I, I kind of like the tape. I think he may be a little over, not overrated, but his ranking, not sure he's the seventh best back in the country, uh, but he's a great pickup, has a unique skill, 
uh, unique characteristic and the ability to run as fast as he does. And so, you know, never sucks to pick off a uh, four-star running back that was previously committed to Miami either. No, exactly. And, and of course, the, the last time that, that, the, uh, that, that Miami beat Florida State, uh, the kids in this recruiting class were how old, Inger? Ooh, um, I don't know. What something were they, like that, yeah. Seventh grade? I, I, somewhere in that I area? Actually, I'll reveal this. I, I have Google Calendar alerts set for this, so I can know when, when I need to make when I need to make a – I do. I, I'll, I'll fast forward. It's, it's like X number of days, and I, it just pops uh, up, and then I'm like, oh, let's make a meme. You know, make a meme, or, or if I've already made one up, uh, you know, pull uh, – yeah, actually, okay. Um, there's a, a day coming up, and I don't want to give it away because some other website will probably steal my shit. Uh, FSU last lost to Miami 1,000 days ago, uh, and that's actually coming up within the next, I'll tell people, within the next two months. Okay. So, yeah, uh, 1,000 days ago would be the last time FSU lost to uh, uh, Miami. What game was that? Is that the German front? Is it, does it go all the way back to the drop ball? Am I forgetting something here? No, this is horrible radio. Right? Uh, yeah, it, it, it does. It does go back to the to the uh, to the drawing ball. Then that's got to be way more than a thousand days. That went three years. I ago. agree. Yeah, I, I think this is definitely something that that's wrong with uh, uh, with, with with my alert there. I'm glad you caught that. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm like, how the hell am I supposed to cuss on this? I'm doing this like the iTunes head, family like, friendly. Okay, Florida State hadn't lost to Miami anytime soon. I mean, was I just uh, uh, you know. Yeah. Okay. So that's there may be a type. All right. That's, we'll check on that's that. More, that. That's that's more possible. Uh, if you figure 2009 was the last time, uh, and that would be what 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. So roughly like coming up on six years. Um, yeah, I, I think 2000 X. Uh, I think I hit a typo there. Uh, in so six calendar. years. Uh, we, we will backtrack. So, yeah, around when I initially said these kids were seventh graders or so, were they not? Uh, no, not exactly. They were, I believe, oh, uh, in yeah. – I think they were in fifth grade. Fifth grade, uh, you're right. Because right? six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and they're entering the twelfth grade. So yeah. they were 10, 10 or 11 years old the last time Florida State uh, lost to Miami, and much younger than that the last time that uh, that Miami actually beat Florida State in Miami, which, of course, if you recall, the last time they won a home game against FSU in Miami was the 2004 season, I believe, when the snap hit Ricks in the nuts in overtime and Frank Gore scores with mm-hmm. Musburger on the call. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah. That was a pretty disappointing was, game. It's one of the many times with Chris Ricks where you just throw in the towel say uh you've, you've committed the unforgivable but uh yeah well, my roommate at the time actually uh, punched a hole at the wall or in the wall and then covered it with a uh, a poster and then we went went to move out at the end of the year we realized we had to fix that thing it was uh the yeah. uh the the chris ricks rage stories are uh are just absolutely legendary uh and and disturbing and wonderful at the same time so um I've met him, by the way, me uh, many years later. Got, got to hang out with him uh, during the Rose Bowl a little bit, and uh, and it was really cool. So, uh, obviously, he was not a very good player for Florida State. Some of that was certainly his fault. Some of that probably not as much due to the fact that he was coached by Jeff Bowden uh, and Daryl Dickey, and that uh, just total cluster uh, of staff. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Very, um, very capable staff that uh, Florida State had during those years. Um, so, but so Amir, about Amir about you want to... I, I think, uh, okay, I'll rapid fire this. Number one, it was important for Florida State to land a running back in this class, especially with what's going on with Dalvin Cook. You never know exactly how that's all going to go down. They needed to get a back in this class. Some of us thought they needed to get two backs in this class. Um, I know they've liked Rasul for a while. He's a guy they felt confident on uh, for quite a while, to be sure. So that's the, at the positive sign they were able to actually close him out he is extremely fast. I actually think he's a better athlete than he is a football player at, at this point in time. I think his game has a ways to go. I think these people comparing him to Dalvin Cook are absolutely insane. Uh, he's not nearly as good as Dalvin Cook was in high school. I don't expect him to be nearly as good as Dalvin Cook was or is so far 
in college, but if he can be a nice piece for FSU, I'm sure he also has some kick return skill with, with that top end speed. You know, guy who I, I want to see how he catches the ball. Um, but I mean, a, a guy that I think they're really happy to have. I know that I think he's rated as like a top seven running back nationally on, on, on 247's composite, which is the uh, the blending of, of the four major recruiting services. I think he's more of like a top 20-ish back, not not a top seven back for me personally. Just uh, that, that's my opinion. I know FSU fans probably won't like to hear that. I'm not trying to hate on the kid or anything like that. Save the email, save the tweets. That's just my opinion. I, I don't think he's a top seven national back. Fair enough. Um, good deal. But uh, finally, we'll just mention real briefly, ACC Media Day is not something that we had talked about otherwise. Um, I think that it's um, it's not something that you get a whole lot of unique storylines out of just the way it's set up uh, and operated. And at the same time, I admire the ACC. They run a pretty good media days most of the most of the time, neither of us attended this year. Um, but I do want to mention just maybe two or three storylines, at least, that I took out of that. Um, and the first was just the kind of general bizarre fact uh, of the narrative that you kept hearing out of the University of Miami about how they had placed a, uh, a disproportionate amount of importance and focus on the Florida State game and that they weren't going to let the Florida State game ruin their season this year. Um, and just all the things that that says about a program, um, I was just surprised, really surprised that that was, uh, that was spoken about by the quarterback, by the head coach, uh, just for what it says about the program as far as a, a mental, you know, kind of a mental uh, you're kind of mentally soft if you let a team ruin your season, if you let a team beat you more than one week, uh, if you admit that you placed such a disproportionate amount of focus on that one game that you more or less, not necessarily that you quit, but that you didn't have it for the rest of the season. And maybe disturbing or most disturbingly is the admittance that this was not like a one-year, this was not a first-year phenomenon. This is something that's happened multiple times uh, and it's just, I can't think of anything else that would make a program seem as small as uh, as admitting something like that. So that was just kind of surprising to me. Yeah, okay. So I, I have multiple thoughts on this. Like, can you say, can you call BS but then also totally believe something at the same time? You know, because I look at this and Miami, okay, the, I just had a lot of thoughts on this. Number one. Miami came into that game against Florida State with three losses. So it wasn't like their season was going great and then they, you know, they lost to Florida State. Thought number two, they were actually playing really well in the, in the, two, previous, you know, in the two prior games to playing FSU. They had killed North Carolina, and they, I think they also were. They, they trounced Trent Tech, right? Yeah, Vatek up in Blacksburg, um, a, a place that's far easier to play than people realize, I think. Uh, so that they were riding high off those two wins. Hey, you, our freshman quarterback is figuring things out, and, and we're we're playing really improved defense. Blah blah blah. You know, Duke Johnson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, uh, you know, they, they lose that game in heartbreaking fashion. So I, I do, I, I don't believe that they put their entire season into that game necessarily, but I do believe that once they lost that game, that they do that they did kind of quit on the season. I think you saw a lot of guys focus. Uh, you know, maybe on their draft stuff, maybe on, on things that were not related to the team, and and the, and the team really fell apart. They, they 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 were favored in those final four games, and they lost them all. You know, they, they three straight upset losses to, to to end the year. It's pretty crappy. At the same time, though, for them to talk about that and for them to talk about how much better the locker room is and and all that kind of crap. You know, to be honest, man, I I don't buy any of these stories from media days anymore about them. You know about any, including Florida State's, uh, about how they're they're working harder, how they have better continuity, how they have better chemistry. You know what? The reason I'll buy those is because you never ever hear anybody saying, "Man, we've just had a really crappy off season. I hope it doesn't burn us too much when the you know, when the season starts." Right? All, all that important work that we missed out on. Even guys who you consider good sources for the team, who aren't even telling you stuff on the record, just you know background info, so you can give good thoughts on on the program. They're not shooting you straight on that kind of stuff because they don't want to admit to themselves that, hey, this offseason has not kind of been how they want it. So 
I'm very hesitant to, to believe in those stories that they like to tell that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, I absolutely know what you mean. And if for no other reason, then that is the, uh, you know, that's not all that different than the story that uh, came out of many a Florida State camp uh, about a better team, a better morale, a, a greater sense of, uh, you know, cohesiveness, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think a lot of people heard that so many years that uh, they became pretty pretty fluent in dismissing that. Yeah, and so, you know, Miami just lost – they just lost seven games with, you know, seven NFL players on their team who got drafted. Come on. Like, that. Uh, what else are they going to say? No, I think we're more talented this year? Mm-hmm. Wrong. You know, it's it's very much to be expected, and and I'm 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 not buying that. I do think that it's telling, though. I I think Miami, and to a certain extent, Florida State, but less so, uh, because they have more diehard fans. They have more fans who actually went to the school and are actually invested in in the success of the team. When that success is not at the very highest level of college football, and by that I mean Miami is a huge front-running town, right? Those fans. Mm -hmm. Those fans quit on that team with a quickness once they realized they're not elite. And so the only real goal left last season entering that Florida State game, I guess you could say the ACC Coastal, but realistically, you know, they already had, had I think, what, two, two ACC losses going into that. So, you know, probably not the, the greatest shot to make it. Um, but you look at that, if, if, if these fans realize that's not a national title type team, then all of a sudden the next thing I think about is, well, can we beat Florida State? That's the defending national champion. That's our rival. That's our measuring stick. And I do think that that fan mentality down there kind of rubs off on on the players. And and so I I believe that they do put a lot of effort into that game. Mm -hmm. Well, that's fair. I mean, nothing wrong with putting a lot of effort into the game. There's a lot of things wrong in in letting that game beat you and and having the record that they've had the past couple years after they played Florida State to finish out the year. Um, <clears throat> it's just a, in my opinion, that's a, that's a, a pretty disturbing remark uh, about the program, both about players' ability to stay locked in, about the ability to buy the message that the coach is selling uh, after a loss like that, and just also just about being able to go out, focus each game, and, and have uh, have an identity or, or have kind of a, a central focus uh, towards something that's better than just a couple loose goals and and uh, I don't know I'm kind of having a hard time putting all this together but it's more if, if losing to Florida State can derail your season that much then you were never really all that fantastically like focused and centered and grounded on what you were looking to accomplish anyway so um, just something that stands out as a program that's uh, kind of just kind of grasping for things right now and doesn't really know what it is or what it wants to be, uh, at least in my opinion. So uh, enough of the Miami talk. But the other thing that I want to mention from ACC Media Day is uh, is the fact that Clemson was not just picked to win the Atlantic, but perhaps the, uh, the disparity in, in first-place votes that they received compared to Florida State. Uh, I don't know that it's necessarily surprising, but it was – a rather, uh, you know, rather almost a two-to-one margin. Uh, was that something that caught your eye, or what exactly do you think when you see that? Yeah, I, it, it caught my eye a little bit, but, you know, in thinking about it, you have to realize, okay, we know a lot about Florida State, and, and we know a lot about, about Clemson. And Clemson riders know a lot about Florida State, and they know a lot about Clemson. What do the other 12 teams in the league, their media members, what do they know about Florida State and Clemson? We did this little game last night, and I think it proved a point, but it wasn't super smooth, right? And I think the the point of it was I was able to name off a boatload of extremely successful Florida State players who are gone from this team, who are actual, like, superstar names. Ingram was able to name off uh, considerably less players from Clemson. Even though we know Clemson lost a ton of, you know, a, a ton of experience, especially on defense and some on the offensive line, the name value of the players that, that FSU lost far exceeds the name value of what Clemson lost. And it's not just Jameis Winston. It's a guy like a Nico Leary, a Rashad Green, you know, Ronald Darby, P.J. Williams. 
Mario Edwards Jr., Eddie Goldman, on and you know Cam Irving. Uh, hell, people even knew the name of FSU's guards. You know, you know, how, like crazy mm-hmm. that is. Like people, mm-hmm. people don't know the names of, of interior linemen in college football unless it's like Chance Womack and they have the, uh, or you know, Chance Womack and they have the the like the belly hanging out with the the Bama thing going on a couple of years ago. People don't know that stuff, but they they knew it for FSU. There is no doubt in my mind that the name recognition of the elite talent lost helped Clemson to get more of those votes. And I think it was by a two to one margin, if I recall it right, about about two to one yep. there for the uh, for the Atlantic Division. The other factor, of course, Clemson does return its QB, but the, the other factor I'm referring to is the game is in Clemson. Mm-hmm. And the winner of this game has determined the winner of this division since, I believe, 08. Does that sound right to you? I think, was 07 the last year that like a Boston College ended up winning the division, or, or was, was uh, 08 the last go back year to Wake. Is it Wake Forest who won the division last? I thought... Uh, wait, did BC ever win the division? Or, or I thought they did, didn't they? Uh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe yeah, Boston, one of those Matt Ryan teams won the division. I'm yeah, not, I think I'm Boston sure. College lost. Yeah, BC definitely played Virginia Tech in, in an AFC title game, That's I believe, right. in, That's in right. Tampa. Um, okay, so anyway, for, for the past at least seven years, uh, the, the winner of that game has determined the winner of the Atlantic Division. Uh, and then most of the time, the winner of, of the ACC in general. And and that has been a very difficult place for FSU and other teams to play, 2013 notwithstanding. And of course, everybody this year is going to point to 2013. Oh, FSU went in there and mm-hmm. beat the dog shit out of them in 2013. Yeah, that's true. But that was a the, the best team in Florida State history. Uh, and this team does not project exactly like that one did, even though we weren't projecting that team to be quite like that at the time, certainly. Yeah. Well, um, and I guess the thing that somewhat caught my eye is not the fact that Clemson was selected. Um, in my opinion, it boils down to two things in kind of the general media member's mind. What's the situation of quarterback look like? Clemson has this freshman who, while injured, it looks very much to be a dynamic prospect, uh, a great talent. He's coming back. Where's the game being played? Those are the two things. Those point to Clemson. <clears throat> I understand that. But Clemson loses so much. I mean, they lose incredible defensive talent. They lose, um, you know, it's the first time you see that with uh, with maybe Dabo really kind of running the offense. That's a scary idea. Uh, they just lost one of their better, probably their best offensive linemen. Uh, their, their kicker's running around acting like he's a, you know, sophomore living in the fraternity house as far as his uh, recreational activities go. Uh, it's just a there's a lot of questions about Clemson, certainly not not like a a known quantity uh as far as a lot of things that surround that program uh really, you could have Louisville, you could have Florida State, you could have clemson i, I don't know that you have anybody that's a two to one favorite to win that uh that division right now, yeah, oh no, certainly, and if you go look let let's let's pull up some online uh odds right now, right various Online betting sites, which, of course, we do not endorse unless you live in a jurisdiction that expressly allows online wagering. Uh, They basically flip-flop. Some have Florida State as I've seen as low as as plus a buck 25. Uh, Other people have Florida State at like 175 and and Clemson at 150. And basically what that tells you when you have only a 25-cent difference, not per cent, but 25-cent, uh, on the money line difference there, in, uh, in 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 those betting odds, is that really their Vegas views that these teams are are practically a coin flip, even knowing that the game is in Clemson. So, it, which to be honest, I think is is probably a fair estimate, right? Both these teams have serious questions. Uh, will Florida State answer more of those questions than Clemson enough to overcome playing that game on the road and and uh, and playing a new QB, albeit one who's pretty experienced? We'll see. Uh, I, I think uh, that toss-up is a fair way to put that. So I guess from that perspective, I was slightly surprised that that function mm-hmm. was picked by two on margin. Good deal. Uh, final thing, and we'll make this quick, bud, but did want to mention uh, coming out of the ACC media days, uh, while not expressed uh, absolutely uh, empirically, it does appear as though there's no um, there's no real reason to think that we're any closer to being an ACC to work. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. 
I don't know that that really would have had a whole lot of traction. And if you look at today's media environment, you look at the way people consume content, um, I don't know that it would have been a good thing for the ACC to dump a bunch of capital and resources into a uh, a project that's just not, uh, you know, may not be a viable option in five years or so uh, when you look at the way people are uh, cutting the cord, so to say, uh, the subscription numbers, uh, the, the way they trend, the challenges that ESPN is going to face. ESPN is in a great place. They're obviously the leader in the market, but you can't just write off um, their subscription numbers either. Those are real. Those are significant. Uh, so I think the ACC has a chance to flourish. Uh, going to face an uphill battle, but if they do so, it will be with, you know, digital content. It will be with, in all likelihood, it will be with some kind of Internet uh, distribution rights, and it, and it won't be through uh, through a form that I think a lot of people have looked for and watched and kind of anticipated when you might see. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. We had a great talk about this last night, I feel like, and, I don't know if we have enough time tonight to really get into it, kind of like we did last night. But, um, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I, I don't think they're really all that close to the ACC network. Um, their product is certainly not as appealing as the Big Ten network and, and as the SEC network, certainly. Uh, and, and so there may not be quite the uh, quite the urgency on the ESPN side. But you also have this issue, um, you know, I, I want to encourage our, our readers uh, – or readers, gosh, hopefully none of y'all are reading this podcast. Hopefully everybody's listening to the podcast. I'm going to encourage everybody to Google the word cord cutters, right? Uh, and with specific reference to cable television. And if you're part of an older crowd, you may not have heard about this phenomenon, but a lot of people who are, are I think even younger than you and I, are going without cable. Mm-hmm. And they're getting they're getting their entertainment strictly from the internet, you know, and and, and streaming streaming video services like Netflix and, and Hulu and Amazon Prime, and I'm sure there's probably Google Video now too, and, and all that kind of stuff. So that that is really um, that that has people at ESPN apparently very concerned from what I've been reading. There, there's a good article too. Uh, what where is it at? Um, it's in the Atlantic actually. You read the Atlantic here? Occasionally, yes, I do. Okay, so a uh, really good article I, I would direct everybody to. It's called, uh, quote, ESPN's plan to dominate the post-TV world. And it, it goes into a lot of detail on this. It's by Derek Thompson on, on July 9th. Uh, I mean, several thousand words, but, uh, I mean, this is, uh, okay, I'll read you a part of this. Every year, Mary Meeker, uh, a Kleiner Perkins analyst, delivers a, quote, Internet Trends presentation that summarizes the state of media and technology in dozens of slides. In 2011, so we're talking, I mean, just four years ago, television held a commanding 47% of Americans' media consumption. Mobile accounted for just 8%. But just four years later, Meeker's 2015 report found that TV share fell by 10 percentage points, while mobile share tripled to 24%. Um, that's ridiculous for for a change. I mean, over four years, we're seeing this as well on Tomahawk. People will notice that I don't publish anywhere near uh, the number of long articles. Right? We do a lot more quick hitter stuff, a lot more short form stuff. Everything that I write, I try to really um, think about the length of it. And sometimes I'll even write articles on my phone to remind myself of how important it is uh, to, to you know how important brevity is in your writing because people are reading these things on smaller devices and smaller screens, tablets, phones, you know, th- th- that type of deal. There, we have a whole generation that's growing up now never really experiencing the Internet via desktop, right? Like you and I, I, I think our first exposure to the Internet was, was via desktop, right, and maybe laptop, certainly not on our phones. Now, I mean, you have a big old huge bulky desktop. I mean, right, exactly. large. Yeah, it, right. Um, like, and if, if your CD tray got stuck, your entire computer broke. So, I mean, now you got kids growing up. It, those of y'all who are are probably a little bit older than us, who, who um, you know, what are you about? You're thirty-ish. So, you know, 
it, it, those of you in the like 35, 40 range are seeing uh, you know, your own kids and your friends' kids who are, are you know, growing up, they now have their own iPads and stuff. That's really how, that's how they know the Internet. They know the Internet in a much different way than you and I knew the Internet coming up, just in terms of your ability to read longer features and stuff. Um, and so I, I try to stay conscious of that. This really affects TV, by the way, because people don't sit and watch hours of television staring at their phone screen. You know, that, that's just not what they do. They're on the go. Um, and, and so the Atlantic continues. Uh, mobile share tripled to 24% in just four years. Uh, it's also eating into radio from 16 to 11. Print uh, got flashed in half, 8 to 4. Uh, desktop was also down. You know, so the, the, they talk about stuff like percentage of time spent versus percentage of the U.S. advertising spending per medium in 2014. It, it, it's a really fascinating article and, and one that I would recommend our readers read. And maybe uh, maybe we'll get further in this ACC network thing and, and have a guest on at some point uh, later on. But the, you, you raised the question earlier, do we really want people or do we really want ESPN to launch an ACC network right now? I don't know. I, I don't know if you really do because I, not necessarily the way, way TV is going. Uh, and what, what would the shelf life be of something like that? How many subscribers would they really have when, when TV goes to more of an a la carte model and less of just a, hey, you're in this region, so we're throwing this onto your cable bill model? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's you just wouldn't have the demand for it. You wouldn't have the uh, – I'm sure some percentage of it would exist, but you wouldn't have, like, the ardent amount of people that call their cable companies and threaten to move. Um, you wouldn't have the kind of groundswell that surrounded the SEC network. Um, it's just a different product. It's a different, uh, well, excuse me, it's, it's a similar product but a different perspective from fan bases. Uh, it's just a whole different culture for a lot of those people. Um, <clears throat> just don't see that working out. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We'll see. Uh, some of the stuff we talked about last night was just the fact that you may see more uh, ESPN. May You may see something created kind of like the way that HBO has done um, WWE, uh, what you can you subscribe to that monthly now at nine ninety five a month, something like that. And you that. get all the pay per views, yeah, right. Um, it'd be interesting to see what that looks like. Um, so we won't go too far into it. It's something that we so, can monitor. If I can read two more paragraphs, as I, I feel like like what you talk about there, the the streaming internet, the you know diversifying, going to more of a mobile thing, and going more a la carte. Although the company. Uh, uh, although the company also owns one of the nation's most read print and digital sports magazines and a massive radio empire, ESPN gets the vast majority of its revenue from TV, particularly from its affiliate fees. Every time a cable TV viewer pays her monthly bill, an average of about $90, an automatic payment of about $6 goes to ESPN, mm-hmm. yep. whether that household watches 100 hours of sports a week or zero. These fees, estimated to account for about half of ESPN's revenue, which is huge, adds up to about $7 billion per year. Now, if you think about that, that's potentially troubling in that those people, like if this thing goes to an a la carte model, uh, that those people who are currently paying $6 for ESPN just because it's part of the basic cable package and you really don't get to pick and choose, the folks who watch zero hours of ESPN a week are not going to be paying $6 a month for ESPN. And there are potentially a lot of those, especially women. Um, so that that's potentially concerning and, and sort of speaks to what we talked about earlier. Like the Big Ten Network got tacked on to everybody's bill in certain regions of the country because that was in their quote-unquote geographic footprint. Well, we're sort of fast approaching an era now where footprint matters less and actual fans matter more. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's, that's potentially an important thing to remember here. I'll continue real quick. Uh, but soon the most valuable piece of glass for ESPN could be the smartphone. In an average week, across all its apps, ESPN delivers approximately 600 million alerts to tens of millions of phones. These alerts, along with ESPN's more traditional digital offerings, such as its app and its new daily feature on Snapchat, have created a mobile Internet audience that is far greater than its television audience, but also without anything like an, affiliated, or like an affiliate fee model to support it and harder to monetize. That's something we're, we're going through right now. Like, we're, we're encouraged to Snapchat. I know some, some businesses are trying to Snapchat, and I just, I don't, I'm like, how am I going to monetize Snapchat? I'm not even on Instagram for purposes of, you know, uh, of, of Tomahawk. So, you know, it's just kind of, uh, um, 
you know what I mean? It, it's just it, it's it's difficult to, to forecast exactly how this is going to go. But I, I think that your skepticism of, of a, a traditional style AC channel is, is well warranted. Certainly. Well, uh, this is something I didn't mention last night. I personally canceled cable about three months ago, so I don't I don't want that to, um, you know, cloud over my own judgment uh, too much. But there's I just it's not when you look at your bill. I, I make a decent living. Um, but when you look at your bill at the end of the month and cable and internet is like $142, that's, that just doesn't make sense when you can have a whole lot of options for $30, 35 uh, as far as entertainment. And for a long time, sports have been kind of the glue that's kept the cable TV bundle together. And, uh, that's just, that is eroding. Uh, it'll be interesting to see at the, the pace that it erodes. Uh, and if it continues to erode, but there are some real changes coming, and uh, the fact that the ACC may not be pegged to a uh, traditional TV network may not be such a, a bad thing in the long run. Absolutely, dude. I'm, I'm actually glad we, we talked about this. It's, uh, it's a topic we can probably hit a few more times throughout the year, and we got to figure out who's a good guest to have on about this, and if... Uh, if y'all have a suggestion as to a guest that we should have on, certainly interested in, in hearing that. Yeah, by all means, I, I would love to delve into it more. It's it's interesting, uh, and it's certainly kind of the wave of the future. And there's a lot of unknown. Uh, but yeah, a lot of time to uh, to further talk about this. But one thing did want to mention. Um, other than that, Bud, I think that'll probably do us for uh, for this evening, uh, unless there was something else you wanted to try to touch on. No, I, I well. Uh, I do get some some questions now about the Dalvin Cook thing, and there's a a rumor going around that Cook actually hasn't been charged, uh, and, and I wanted to to clarify that. Um, I actually asked Cook's attorney uh, about the rumor over the weekend because I was like, huh, I, I'm pretty sure he's been charged. And so I, I emailed uh, Ricky Patel, who is Cook's attorney, a uh, question. I said, hey, uh, have charges actually not been filed somehow against Dalvin that I missed? Uh, and... Uh, you know, I said, if so, what's the chance they file uh, no information and, and don't you know, prosecute this thing? When is the hearing again? Because um, I want to make sure we had all our timelines right. He said, uh, yes, he has been charged. The first hearing is for September 2nd. Um, I hope to have some more information upcoming. So uh, the, the rumor, at least, that Cook has not been charged uh, appears to be false, as far as I can tell and as far as Cook's attorney can tell, <laughs> and uh, he would be one to know. And uh, I will add that, I mean, there's always the possibility that, that at his, his hearing on September 2nd that they could decide not to go forward with the charges if they wanted to and, and to drop the case perhaps because the, the evidence is weak or, or maybe, uh, maybe a prosecutor or a state attorney who was looking to make a big-time you know, big statement uh, and off the momentum of the DeAndre Johnson deal uh, and, and maybe, uh, maybe reclaim some of his reputation that he perhaps lost in in, uh, in in the eyes of the national media and not charging James Winston, although I think that was the decision that was fully supported by the evidence, of course. Uh, maybe that was a – maybe the decision to charge Cook was – maybe they have a change of heart. Maybe that wasn't the best idea type thing like that. We'll have to see. Uh, the evidence so far certainly doesn't seem um, to be extremely compelling or, or, or dooming uh, for, for Cook, so – I just wanted to give people an update on that and figure if they listen to the full hour and however long this is, that they deserve that little nugget. Certainly. Certainly glad you did that as well. Um, well, good deal, bud. Certainly enjoyed the conversation uh, for the most part. It'll be interesting to see what comes of Florida State's recruiting class. Hope people don't, uh, you know, we, we weren't trying to be uh, unnecessarily pessimistic, but it was something that we've talked about a little bit and it started to become more of a trend. Uh, and again, honestly, a conversation that we had last night, um, even even prior to the NADA decommitment. So um, don't want to make too much out of one kid. Don't want to be overly critical of a uh, class and a staff that's currently ranked third in the country, uh, but a conversation worth having. So uh, we'll, you know, just be something to look back on in time and, and see how that whole situation plays out. Definitely. All right, guys. Cool. Appreciate you listening. Absolutely. Appreciate you listening. Anytime you get a chance to share this uh, via whatever social means you, you feel appropriate, it is very much appreciated. And uh, any kind of iTunes ranking, not Google Plus. Give us. 
Google Plus. I mean, really, you know? like, don't share this on Google Plus or LinkedIn or Dig. I mean, that that's like let, 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 let's let's stick to the to the power players here, right? Facebook, yeah. Twitter, your wife's Facebook, because he probably has more friends than you do. Uh, all all good avenues to share on. Not not some of the lesser ones. Don't don't Snapchat this or Instagram this. Oh, I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Oh man, it, it's twelve thirty. I figured I had some time. Fair enough. All right, bud. We'll talk again soon. Uh, certainly enjoyed it. Appreciate it, and uh, appreciate everybody that listened. Thank you.